I'm always looking for some kind of metaphor, occupation, historical event that has a weight and a meaning that isn't immediately transparent. You know, you think of a card player. What a kind of limbo life this is. You're running numbers, running odds, 12 hours a day. You know, what kind of, what's going on there? What's really underneath? Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Paul Schrader's new thriller, The Card Counter. The film weaves the story of an ex-military interrogator turned gambler who is haunted by the ghosts of his past decisions. When he is approached by a vulnerable and angry young man seeking revenge against a mutual enemy from their past, he sees a chance for salvation, but risks a fall back into dark territory. In addition to the card counter, Mr. Schrader's other directorial credits include the feature films First Reformed, Dark, Dog Eat Dog, Gigolo, and Blue Collar, the documentary feature Venice 70, Future Reloaded, and the movie for television Witch Hunt. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Schrader spoke with fellow director John Patrick Shanley about filming The Card Counter. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I've seen the film twice, tonight being the second time. And what really hit me the second time was how propitious it is to be releasing this film now when when I read the newspaper, when I look at the news, I'm overwhelmed by how the deficits in our history, in our American history, our sins, if you will, have come home to roost and how the real question of expiation, of how do we get past all the terrible things that we as human beings, as members of the human race have done, which is what the main character in this film so amazingly beautifully played by Oscar Isaacs is faced with. That's his problem. It's like, how do you get past that? Can you get past that? And uh, the solution, which I want to ask you about, which has been something that's been haunting your work since you saw Pickpocket, that last scene of the prison and the woman coming and that hope or lifting of guilt, of impossible, you can't be forgiven. You know, there's certain things you do, you can't be forgiven. And you got to be forgiven, you know, if, you, if you're going to survive um, as, a, as a race of people. And I know... I remember at one point I was at your apartment and you, you had a, a bust of Beatrice, uh, uh, Dante's Beatrice, and that there are these exonerating women, whether it's in Faust or in Dante uh, or in Pickpocket or in uh, Patty Hearst or what, they show up and provide us with a, a array of, of hope. You know, the character, the obnoxious guy who's always winning, 
with and chanting USA, USA, is very just very wrenching to me of a personal sense, and forgive me, I don't mean to offend anybody, but a personal sense of shame uh, at the cumulative missteps, if you gently put, uh, of American history that we've really kind of been faced with in a more overt and brutal way than previously. And how are we going to deal with it? What are we going to do? There's that, which is, in other words, one of the things that Paul does is he leaves room for me to have my movie, my experience of his film. He doesn't fill in all the blanks for me. He gives me that room to experience the pain, the weight of what is unresolved in my own life. Um, so I, I guess I'd start by asking, for, you know, how did you come to write this film? Well, I, I came to the place you're talking about, but I came in through the back door because I never really intended to do a political film. I'm always looking for some kind of metaphor, occupation, historical event that has a weight and a meaning that isn't immediately transparent. A cab driver is, in fact, the black heart of existentialism. You know, that's not how you think of a cab driver. And so when you get, you know, you think of a card player, what a kind of limbo life this is. You're running numbers, running odds, 12 hours a day. You know, what kind of, what's going on there? What's really underneath? You know, I'm not, I don't really care about real poker players. I, I care about, if someone said to me, you know, you caught my life, I'd say, gee, what did I do wrong? I don't want your life. Uh, <laughs> I want the life of this character. So I started wondering, you know, what kind, what's under this profession and the weight? And, uh, and we live in an era where, you know, no one is responsible. Uh, I didn't lie to you. I misspoke. I didn't touch her inappropriately. I made a mistake. And I come from a background where you're born into this world soaked with guilt, and then you just get guiltier. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you, you are responsible. In fact, you're responsible for what other people do. And, uh, and I thought, you know, what if someone like from my background had done something. He was now living in this purgatorial space in these casinos. And then I started thinking about, well, what could he have done? You know, serial killer is kind of a cliche. and A, a torturer is kind of a horror thing. And then I realized I will grab. I mean, what is unforgivable? If anything is unforgivable, that is, because it's not a stain against you as a person. It's a stain against your nation, your country, your traditions. And it's a stain that will never go away. You can die. Everybody involved can die. And the stain will still be on the flag. And uh, so I thought, you know, now I have it. And, um, you know, here's a man who did his time, seven and a half years in prison, Society said to him, you paid your debt. And he said, no, I haven't. Mm. You know, I'm still paying it. And uh, then I had something there. I had 
a kind of uh, occupation and a kind of societal guilt that is crystallized in this man's behavior. You know, it says there, there is a weight, a gambler accrues when he accepts money, and there's also a weight you can accrue from your past actions. And he has this weight. And then, uh, you know, it's amazing to people how schematic these ideas are in my head. It's not like some suddenly some impulse, the sun comes shining through and your heart opens up and all. No, no, it's, it's all kind of worked out. And so now you say, okay, um, what can happen now? Well, you say, oh, obviously this guy can't forgive himself. How can we do that? Well, then he meets, he meets somebody who wants do the thing that he wants to do, seek bloody revenge. And then he starts to realize, if I can talk this young kid out of this path, maybe I can forgive myself. And now you have a kind of dialectic going on. So, in fact, these sort of ideas are not, uh, you know, spontaneous. Shelley and Keats, he wound up. Even 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 Keats was not spontaneous. He was, he was far from spontaneous, but you know, it was not that kind of myth of the the overburdened heart bursting out. So, and I expect it's the same way for you. It's a lot of calculation involved, and then at a certain point, you let yourself free, you know. But you can't really uh, get naked until you figure out what you're wearing. Yeah, and the. For me, when I watch it, and Isaac's character says that the narrative of his life got broken. And I'm like, now this kid is about to do something that's going to break the narrative of his life. And I'm like, okay, he's going, he can't. And if they think of our own country and the things that have been done here, and then you say, all right, it's, it's the next generation. We have to do something to get the narrative better for the next generation that, that's coming. I, I noticed both times when I saw the film, and I felt it very much myself, is the moment when the audience realizes that he hasn't saved that kid, they groan. Yeah. They, it's a blow. Uh, and, uh, it's, and it's really powerful. It's a, it's a great moment in the film because your wish fulfillment has been destroyed. Yeah, I mean, the film plays with certain conventions. So this is, you know, a fair number of red herrings swimming around. One of them is called Mr. USA. And, you know, and the uh, conventions of genre are so strong that even though you know, as an intelligent viewer, I really don't give a damn about this guy. You're still waiting for that showdown because that's how your entertainment DNA has been structured. And so you can use these uh, these patterns. Uh, like you can pretend to do, uh, I'm going to do a little documentary. I'm going to tell you how gambling goes on. You know, we're, we're not going to make a serious film. This is a little uh, PBS film about how you count cards. And so you use these sort of tricks and then all of a sudden. Well, let me ask you this. Are you any closer 
or maybe you had it from the beginning, to understanding why the entrance of the feminine is the place where you might have hope? Well, I mean, that is, you know, I mean, Eve gave us the apple and then we blamed her. Uh, Obviously, the matriarchal aspect of culture is the one that's full of grace and uh, forgiveness. And uh, these characters are right, theoretically, could be women. But I don't really understand them that well. I mean, I don't understand women that well. I, I know what these guys think about, even when they don't. But I don't know what women think about, even when they do. And uh, and I'm going to deal with this, actually, in the next one, because something weird happened. I started doing another one of these. And this time he's a horticulturalist. He's a gardener. And all of a sudden I realized I developed a triangle. His, he's out of the state. There's his boss. And then her grandniece, who's, so she's 70 and the grandniece is like 23. And all of a sudden a romantic triangle starts to emerge. Well, in these stories I tell, there's always just, the guy, and then the the passing parade. Uh, they never devolve into a triangle. So, like, Civil Shepherd never meets Jodie Foster. Mm. But now all of a sudden they're going to meet. Now things are going to happen that our protagonist is not aware of. Those two women, his mother and his daughter, are going to have a conversation. And he's not going to be there. You know, uh, so it's a way to get this formula, bring some new wrinkles into this formulation. Um, and so maybe I'll figure out, and, uh, it's going to be with Joel Edgerton and uh, Sigourney Weaver and mm-hmm. casting the girl now. And, uh, and uh, as you know, of course, you learn so much from actors. And... Uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, these two women I cast will sort of help guide me through uh, through this uh, terra incognita. It's a striking thing in Western literature, this idea of, you know, like in Crime and Punishment, uh, that a woman comes in, I think it's Sonia, what, yeah. at the end, and is, is sort of that uh, uh, saving angel for uh, Raskolnikov. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's repetitive. It happens so much. And I'm not sure I completely understand why, unless it's mother, you know, just the, the, the primal relationship with the mother versus the father, that there's something there. Well, I mean, I I do think it it goes very, very deep and very ancient. Mm. Uh, You know, the early religions after the animistic ones, were matriarchal, fertility religions. And then uh, something happened when cities evolved is that the religions and the society became patriarchal. But we still, back in our primal brains, still look to that matriarchal uh, forgiveness, Mm -hmm. uh, that that will wash us clean. 
you know, the, the blood, you know, the patriarchal, they talk about a lot of blood, a lot of animal sacrifice and symbolic sacrifices in the blood, in the blood, are you washed in the blood? Well, the blood is not going to do it. <laughs> and we keep trying to answer it with the blood. But no, it's the other thing that comes from between a woman's legs that's going to do it. Mm. So let me ask some basic technical questions. Like how long was the shoot? Well, you know, I get the freedom from final cotton uh, by uh, being very lean. There's nothing in this film but on the cutting room floor. Everything I shot is up there. And uh, so this was shot in 20 days. Wow. First, first Reformed was shot in 20 days. The next one will be shot in 20 days. Well, in order to do that, you have to, you know, know everything you're going to do. Uh, within, you know, leaving you room to be spontaneous in the moment. But that way, because the technology is so inexpensive now, uh, it's a way that I could get a freedom that I couldn't get earlier, uh, total freedom. And I need it now because the industry has changed. When I began, I didn't have final cut, but it didn't really matter because you were dealing with people who watched movies, who liked movies, who came from movie tradition. Sometimes the movie got better, sometimes it got worse, but... Now we have a whole generation of film financiers that not only don't watch movies, don't even care much for movies. And they're just the equity people uh, who are running the numbers. And I started realizing that you can't talk to these people that you have to have final cut. Mm -hmm. and, and then I started realizing that you can have final cut in my world if you work really close to the best. Mm. And what so, was the budget on it? Well, I think it'll be both this and First Reform, about three and a half. Excellent. Excellent. Now, in that ex establishing shot outside the casino when the cat walked through frame, was that your cat or was that just a cat? <laughs> that was just a cat. <laughs> I thought it had that look about it, <laughs> that amateur, you know. <laughs> The cat. That was good. That was good. And I remember standing there saying, oh, there's a cat over there. I wonder if he'll get in the shot. And he did. <laughs> and so the, experience, so the experience of working with the cast was? Well, I mean, Oscar, um, you know, he's such a movie star. Uh, he had, had those bones and that look, you know, a bit Mastriani, a bit... Uh, silent movie star like Raymond DeVaro. And you have to get him and make sure that he doesn't act. And if you say to an actor, you can't act, mm. you know, they always take it the wrong way. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to find other ways to sort of say this. And so you say things like, Imagine you are the rocky coast of the, in the North Atlantic and a storm and the waves are battering up against you and they're trying to destroy you and they're called day players and they're called weather and they're called budget and they're all after you. 
ignore them. If a day player wants to steal a seed from you, let them. Because you're still going to be there. You're the shore. You're the rock. They're going away. You're not a tree in the wind. You're a rock. Well, then the ones that act start saying, you're not saying to him, don't act. You just say, act, but act like a rock. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're giving all your tricks away. Uh, and, uh, and so what was the experience of shooting the film for you? Did did the, did it surprise you in making the film in any way? Was it different than what you? Well, thought? we we had we had a we had a shutdown. We had a hiatus due to COVID, which is the same hiatus that everyone else had that weekend. And then you get scared uh, because you don't know. I mean, to me, the most terrifying line for a director in a movie is in Truffaut's Day for Night. And the leading man leaves the set and the narrator says, and then the thing that directors fear most happened. And you hear the sound of screeching tires and a car crash. And you know that your leading man had just died. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we, we all fear that. He said, well, now I'm going to have a six-month hiatus. My God, any of these people can die. And then I don't have a film anymore. And, you know, I mean, too bad for them if they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> so the important thing is I don't have a film. And, uh, and I remember getting, getting them back together. I say to Oscar, because he was already wearing a beard on the next show. And I said, uh, he was in Europe. And I said, Oscar, we have a window here to finish this film. This could become one of those famous films that never got made. Do you want to be involved in a film that never got made because you were afraid to cut off your beard? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so they did come back. And uh, How many days of shooting did you have left? We had shot 15. We had five more to go. Mm. And what was interesting is, you know, when you have a big budget film, you often can cut the film together, show it to people, get reactions, and then perhaps they'll let you reshoot or do new scenes. Well, with independent film, you don't have that opportunity. You get a little piece of money and you spend it and that's that. So here I had three quarters of a film and I could edit it together, which I did, and then put placeholders in you have a still image of the location and have the actors read the lines, cut between the headshots of the, the actors. And so you, all, you have, in fact, a completed film with seven, eight scenes that say, scene yet to be shot. And then you can show that to people and you can ask them, what have I missed? I get to go back. I can rewrite all these scenes. I'm, I know I'm missing something. What am I missing? And usually your friends can't tell you that because they know you can't go back. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to tell you, you know, you totally fucked up that one scene. <laughs> or you're totally missing one element. But now, like I showed to Scorsese, I said, Marty, I think I'm missing something. What, what do you think it might be? And then he starts to talk, you know. And uh, so that was the upside of the hiatus mm-hmm. because I rewrote all those things when we went back. Uh-huh. 
I mean, didn't change them materially, but, you know, tuned them in a way that uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it had I not had the experience of seeing the whole film cut together. Yeah, yeah. That guy who played the kid was great. You know, Ty Sheridan? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's a veteran. He's, uh, he was, he's from Austin. Terry Malick phoned him on an open call for Tree of Life. Mm. And uh, so he was like 13 at that mm. time. So he's been doing this a while. You had a lovely soft quality where you you you, you were with Oscar, Oscar's character going like, you're not going to be able to do this thing that you want to do. <laughs> well, I don't want to close without saying that I've known Paul for 30 years. We don't hang out all the time or anything, but from time to time. Uh, and I've been watching his films all my life. And I'm astounded by the high quality of this late stage of your career uh, with First Reformed and this film, that these are incredibly accomplished films, both on a technical level, uh, music, editing, everything about them is masterful. And that your career in general has been filled with just shockingly interesting choices for a very long time. Yeah, well, uh, it's very rare that a film critic actually tells you something you don't know. <laughs> uh, but in this case, David Ehrlich, who is probably the toughest critic not working, he works at IndieWire, he wrote something, and as soon as I read it, I said, he's right. And he said this all began, meaning these last two films, it began when Travis Pickle followed Peter Boyle out on the sidewalk in front of the Belmore cafeteria and walked over to him when a young, confused kid said to the older cabbie, I've got these terrible thoughts in my head. They wanted advice. And the older cabbie says, you know, you get a job, you become a job, you're, you're fine. But uh, David Ehrlich spotted that. He said, that's what's going on now. That the protagonist is now Peter Boyle. Mm-hmm. and the young kid is coming up to him. So in the case of First Reform, he's suicidal. In the case of this film, he's homicidal. Uh, you know, it's kind of amazing at the age of 75 to have a critic point out something that should have been obvious to you <laughs> in the past. Yeah, you're not supposed to know everything about what you do, and, and you don't. And like I said, you do leave this room for the audience to have their film. Uh, they don't, you don't tell them how to feel about every moment. It's very uncompromising and brave. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not as brave as you. Like when I, when I work, uh, I do stuff to make it okay for the audience. You don't. Well, I mean, you know, I suppose we're the laziest people on earth. You don't have to do anything. You know, uh, a filmmaker, he grabs you by the lapels. He shows you some beautiful women and some fast action and some big noise. And he shakes you and he plays music so you know how to feel all the time. Mm. And you don't have to do anything. And uh, so it's uh, always sort of uh, a surprise for viewers when you say, you know, figure it out. Mm. You know, I mean... I'll end with this sort of this notion of this guy 
who's going along and you're following him and hearing his voice and about an hour goes by and now you, you're sort of into his life. And then empathy forms because that's what happens when we see images. We, we form empathetic relationships and they move to find empathetic relationships in time. And then the guy starts to behave a little strangely. And it's okay. And so then he starts to say, well, maybe he's not really worthy of my empathy. I think this guy is going to do something that I'm not going to approve of. <laughs> but it's so late now. It's an hour and 15 minutes in. I want to see how it's going to end. And so you've created a kind of crevice in their skull where these things are separating the movie that they approve of and the movie they don't approve of. And they're going to stitch that, that crevice up. They're going to heal it with scar tissue. And it's going to be their own tissue. It's not going to be yours. And however they decide to make amends of this conf conflict is good because that's what art does. Mm. And if they say one thing, that's the right answer. Another thing, that's the right answer. The one before this, somebody asked me, does the character, the main character live or die at the end? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I can make a case for either one, but I, which one it is, I don't know. Mm. And uh, so that is, when you create that kind of unease, uh, it pulls the viewer into having to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a stoicism in the, in the camera in your films where you accept what they do, you don't judge it, you leave us to judge it if we're going to judge, but not, not the camera. The camera is impartial, it seems to me. Yeah, but, well, so many things the camera does are judgmental. Mm. Uh, you know, if you foreground something, you know, you're, you're making a comment. Uh, if you do these glorious sunset and these, these sort of crane shots, uh, it's more than pretty pictures. It's your editorializing. Uh, just like you are when you play that dreadful piano cocktail lounge music they have in movies. So if you can keep to some degree from editorializing visually while keeping the story interesting, it just gives, you know, it's, it's in, in a way what is called planometric composition, which is when you have one plane of focus rather than foreground, background. and as simple as it sounds, multiple planes of focus are an editorial comment, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one of the things that I've been writing about forever. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap it up? No. Um, the, um, the music, I'll say. Gorgeous. I, um, I did a film about 25 years ago about this character when he was a drug dealer played by Willem Dafoe. And Michael Bean, who had a Christian group called The Call, did the, a song cycle. And I thought, well, you know, it may be interesting to try that again. But Michael died 10 years ago, and he was backstage with his son's band called Black Rebel Motorcycle Club in Paris, and he died 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
I said, well, you know, why don't we check on his son? <laughs> you know, see if maybe Robert would should do it. So then I had this idea. I said, I'm going to come at you just like I come at your father. I'll give you an idea and see what you can do with it. And the idea is there's a beast in this tar pit. And he is, you can hear him. He's groaning. He's breathing. He's under there. And you know he's trying to get out. And he starts to come out, and then he doesn't quite come out. And then he gradually emerges, and his sounds start to form words. And the words start to form lyrics. And the melodies and the words intertwine, and then a, a female voice emerges. So these songs in the movie don't emerge until halfway in. And they are the sound of the beast who has, is now coming out. So the, all that stuff that Robert is doing, all that, all that, is, you know, it's, it's something being born. Uh, you know. Very effective. And that scene, the city of light, that was just a beautiful. Yeah, well, I mean, when you deal with this kind of uh, severe landscape, at some point, you have to clean, you, have, you need a palate cleanser. You have to show that there is another world. And first reformed, it was a levitation scene where all of a sudden these two people, there is a place they can go that is not in this world. There's a, there's a world of magic that's right there. You can almost touch it. And the same thing with these two people. There is another world for them. I just want to tell you about it. Uh, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Schrader. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.